0: The Gospel lesson is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel, 19 through 21. Hear then the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together... With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.' After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, "'Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you.' And with that, he breathed on them and said, "'Receive the Holy Spirit.'" If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, he declared, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I started off last week with a joke. I think I'll start off this week with one. It's not much of one, but it is pertinent to what I'm gonna say. I heard a joke once about the West Virginia University football team. The whole team was placed in remedial English. We called that in my day bonehead English. The teacher asked the class, What comes at the end of a sentence? And all the players confidently raised their hands and said, the appeal. You'll catch on. I want to make a a public appeal to change the title of my sermon with your permission. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. After after I got into the text, I realized that uh, that was before I gave it a careful reading. So permit me to change the sermon title to this, From Unbelief to Belief. In this sermon, I want to treat The account of the so-called Doubting Thomas, who encounters Jesus, and in so doing, I hope to demonstrate that my appeal for this change in title is more appropriate to what the text actually says. And so, with that behind me, I want to propose that the text calls us to trust the gospel, and to take up the task of continuing the mission of Jesus in our day. What I want you to see is that this text is less about Thomas and more about Jesus, less about a so-called doubting Thomas, and more about believing in the work and ministry and mission of Jesus. Thomas encountered Jesus... And what he did was to receive an invitation to believe in Jesus and his resurrection. Now, let's look at the situation, and this will tell you why I've changed my mind about the title. Thomas was absent the Saturday or Sunday evening in which the disciples first met. Now, these are not apostles, they're disciples. And they were meeting in a room and they had closed the doors and locked them for fear of the Jews. That meant the temple authorities. A week later, these same disciples were meeting behind locked doors, not because they were fearful, but it had to be for other reasons because John does not mention that they any longer were afraid. But Thomas, this time, was with them. He was not with them the first time. Thomas did not believe his friends report that Jesus had appeared to them. And he stated to them that he would not, in fact, it's almost a defiance. I will not believe unless I can put my fingers in his wounds. In other words, Thomas wanted empirical proof He thought they were seeing apparitions, and he simply did not believe that they had seen Jesus. He wasn't just simply doubting, he did not believe, because the dead do not rise. Now, in a real sense, Thomas is only repeating exactly what these disciples had repeated earlier when Mary Magdalene came running to them and said, I have seen the Lord. They didn't believe at first. Now, Thomas gets the name Doubting Thomas from his response. But here is the crux of my change of the title the word doubt does not appear in the Greek text, though it appears in many modern English translations. You see the phrase in 27b. In the NIV, which was read to you, stop doubting but believe. But in Greek, if you read Greek, you will see that it is this. Do not be unbelieving but believe. Now, what I have reconsidered is that Thomas' problem was not simply one of doubt. It was one of unbelieving. Period. Unbelief is a much more serious problem than is a person experiencing doubts. Every point um, in the Gospels and in, in John's work up to this point points out what unbelief is. It's darkness. It can be rebellion. It rejects. So you see, Unbelief is man's problems, not doubt. Unbelief is the real problem. It is darkness, according to John. But God helps the doubter. I went back and read that passage in Mark nine twenty four, where the father who has his hea- child healed says to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. There is doubt and God does indeed help him. So the problem here is more serious than just simply some qualms of conscience and doubt. This is real rejection, if you will, of the possibility of the resurrection. Now, this does, of course, strengthen the argument for the resurrection. It's one of the arguments that Christians use. These people were not expecting the dead to rise. Jesus was gone. That was it. The dead do not rise. That's our human experience in a common way. And yet, these appearances and these confrontations with Jesus after his resurrection changed even the mind of the unbelieving Thomas. Let me say that the power of the resurrection, the power to change unbelief to belief, is really what Christianity is about. Now, Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, it seems to me, logically, is watertight. If there is no resurrection, then we are deceiving ourselves and there is no hope. No hope in the ordinary sense of life after death, believe me. Human history, as you read back further and further and further, is filled with attempts to find some time of meeting beyond the grave. And history is littered with those attempts as we dig into the sand and the dirt and uncover what the burial and funerary rites were of the ancients. But something different happened here. Changed everything. And what Paul goes on to say is that when Christ died on the cross, it was a demonstration of God's love. And when he was raised from the dead, it was a demonstration of God's power, which can give us hope. And so Thomas actually came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been his follower in the way that a disciple would follow a rabbi and embrace his teaching. It was almost like the followers who followed the young men of Athens followed Socrates. Hardly more than that. But the resurrection made the difference. Now we, though, are not witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why have we come to believe? Well, we have come to believe in the resurrection. And Jesus in verse 29 even commends those who come to believe in him. And Jesus told them, because you have seen me, he says in verse 29, you have come to believe in me, particularly pointing to Thomas. And then he goes on to say, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, that includes us, doesn't it? You have not seen the Lord with your naked eye. You have not seen him in his bodily presence and felt his wounds. I don't even know that Thomas went that far. Then why have we come to believe? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Well, we have one reason here in verse 31. But these things, says John, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is the eyewitness account that is passed down to us through the Scriptures that we believe. That's, that's one reason. These Scriptures speak of Jesus, and not just simply in the New Testament, but as I said last Sunday, The prophets of old foretold of this message that would come to be in this person. It would be the fulfillment of Israel. Moreover, Paul reminds us that we come to believe because we hear the gospel. We hear the message that Thomas heard. And we've come to believe. You say, well, pastor, that doesn't pass for very much, if you will, Evidence that most people clamor for but there is another reason that we believe and that is that the message itself of the gospel and the message of the scripture possess a power that ordinary speaking and reading do not for they are given of the Holy Spirit And we believe that God has opened our eyes and we've come to faith in Christ. We, in fact, have experienced what those early disciples experienced. Now, that's an important matter. That you have come to experience what they experienced through the preaching of the gospel. You don't see Jesus with your eye, but you do hear the very things that they heard. And the Holy Spirit, we believe, is alive and well, enabling us to embrace and to behold our interest in Christ Jesus. That's the essence of verse 31. It is then through the preaching of the gospel, and it is through the reading of the Scriptures, that we have come to faith in Christ through the power of the Spirit. We've experienced Christ in our hearts. Now, Jesus also demonstrates here in this passage a willingness to abundantly give of himself. Notice how many times the phrase, peace be with you, appears here. Now, that's a normal greeting. But in this context, it is more than a normal greeting because Jesus is telling those who rejected him, yes, all of them rejected him when he was crucified, he now extends peace to them, God's shalom. He tells them that everything is all right between us. And this is a fulfillment, if you will, of his great priestly prayer earlier in John's gospel where he says, My peace I give unto you, and here he gives them and extends his peace to them on the spot. And notice how willing he is to even allow Thomas to touch his wounds, to feel his side. You know, this text, if it says anything, tells us how much God is for us in Christ Jesus. It tells us how much God indeed reaches out and extends his grace and his love to us. The whole incarnation, the entire structure of the gospel story is an extension of God's great love for us in human history in a person to incorporate and bring us into his presence. The entire structure of salvation is God coming and confronting us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that being settled, that's not all, though. Thomas makes his great confession. This is actually the greatest confession that you will find in the Bible. This one who moments before Jesus appeared in the room was in unbelief comes to belief and he he exclaims, My Lord and my God. It is the fullest expression from the lips of a person who's not writing theology like Paul, that you find in the New Testament. It's unmistakable. My Lord and my God. He embraces Jesus in his resurrection as God being incarnate. This is what we preach and teach, isn't it? It is why you have come to trust in Christ. But I want you to know that I'm going back to the first because Jesus is doing something else with Thomas. He not only brings him to a place where he encounters the Lord and comes to faith, but now he gives him a task as he has with the other disciples. And look at verses 19 then, back again. And you read up through 20, they experience the Lord's presence. And notice verse 21, And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Now what is that? It's the Great Commission. And Thomas now has been included in the Great Commission. He has come to true faith and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, my Lord and my God. And now he joins that company of people that will continue on the work and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ here on earth. Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Now I am sending you. And I'm sending you out into the world, not, if you will, as orphans alone. But he breathed on them. This is the only place in the New Testament or I think in the entire Bible, that you find this expression in the way that it is. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. Let me confine that to the New Testament. He breathed on them. And of course, in a few days later, a few weeks later, they will receive the Holy Spirit of Pentecost in a powerful way. Now, in some ways, this is proliptic. Now, that's a fancy word that means that Jesus answers an argument before they even raise it. If we're going to represent you in the world, how are we going to carry it out? We don't have the strength. We don't have the forces. We don't have the money. We don't have whatever it takes. We don't have the advertising program. And he breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he gives them his power to minister in his name and to preach the very same gospel that they have come to believe. To take the love of Jesus to the world. Moreover, he says, and this is some phrase, is it not? He tells them that if you forgive the sins of anyone, they will be forgiven. And if you don't forgive the sins of anyone, they will be forgiven. It has to do with the human condition. More about that in a moment. But let me say this. We stand in the great tradition of those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, have received the Holy Spirit, and we are to carry out a mission while we are here on earth. Let me say, you are not simply brought to Christ and believe in Him simply to be comfortable and to be well-fed spiritually. You are to carry the message to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. You're in a great relay race. And we have an obligation here at Westminster to pass the torch on. What is that? The gospel of Christ, His ministry. Every church in this area has an obligation to pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation. What you have received as a believer, you must make your own and pass it on to the next generation. In other words, we are obligated to carry out the Great Commission. That's why I'm strongly encouraging you to attend this seminar on evangelism. Most people don't know how to evangelize. Most people don't know, Christians don't know how to share the gospel with another person. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't care. They say that's not my gift. But we must remember that we have received the Holy Spirit who's equipped us to enable us to share in the ministry of Christ. What about this cryptic saying, to forgive and not to forgive? Let me just simply say this is not a power the church possesses as a naked power. I have no right to say to a person, you're not forgiven or you're forgiven on my own power. Now, there are those who claim that. But nowhere else in the scriptures do you find this kind of statement. What did Jesus really mean? It seems to me he is saying that the church has the power to confirm those who receive the gospel and to assure them that their sins are forgiven and to not give assurance where the gospel is rejected. You see, this too is the work of the Spirit. I have the power to assure people when they confess Christ, truly, their sins are forgiven, but I have no power to forgive sins. The church does not have the power to forgive sins. You do not have the power, but the response to the gospel message is either yes or no. And it is my privilege and yours to tell a weak and struggling soul If you truly receive Christ and the gospel of his son, your sins are forgiven. What a wonderful message to confirm people in the love of God. Let me say today, our problem in affecting our culture, and we're losing it. If there's one thing I've observed in my ministry through the time I've been here, is that we are indeed incrementally losing our culture. And it's not due to the fact that we have fewer Christians. In fact, we have at least the same number proportionally to the whole. What is the problem is not the Christian individual. The problem is that the church no longer plays its role in society that it once played as a true teacher to the culture what is good and what is true and what is evil. We've never really ever entered into politics historically. And and I don't advocate it ever. As a church, as a Christian citizen, yes. But not as a church. But what are we? We are a teacher. And the more we enter into politics and lose our ability to teach, the worse things get. I'm talking about the church as church. But we have a right to teach on moral issues. It is not good for our society to redefine everything. You know, there is a breaking point to everything. There is a point when everything collapses. Or as a popular book of recent years noted, there is always a temping point in everything. In the middle of the 19th century, the Presbyterian General Assembly was so powerful that President Lincoln, on one occasion, before he made a decision that concerned the moral and spiritual welfare of the country, he says, I want to know what the Presbyterian General Assembly said. Not one political leader, <laughs> not one, cares a whit about what any General Assembly says. They don't care what any church says. What they're going to do is totally ignore you. As a matter of fact, we're going to punish you if you hold to your standards. The problem is not a break with an individual Christian, our culture, the problem is a break with its spiritual engine. What has happened? We've not carried out the Great Commission. That's what's happened. And Jesus, for nothing, did not say to those and to Thomas, Your sins are forgiven, and breathed on them that they might just simply be satisfied. With a smile on their face, singing hallelujah, without any effort to extend the ministry. That's Westminster's challenge. I hope every person will get on board. This is a crucial time in our, in our uh, life and history here, in the country and in the life of our church. And the answer is, is to double down. Double down. Get on board. Support the witness. Time, money, and effort. Praise be to God for our ministry. Amen.